following broadcast may contain free thinking and open-minded discussion, ideas, skepticism, and adult subject matter. Topics will be discussed using adult language, sometimes gratuitously. Get ready to move the conversation forward. This ain't your granddad's news and comment show. This is I Doubt It Podcast with Brittany Page and Jesse Dallimore. Welcome to the show, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Episode 764 of I Doubt It Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Dollimore, joined today by the lovely, the talented, and indeed the scholarly, Brittany Page, everybody. Now, Jesse, listen. I know we have things that we need to get to, important things that we need to talk about, but we really need to start here. The war on Christmas <laughs> has finally come to Fox News's doorstep in New York City. I'm <laughs> That's right. The 50-foot tree. Yeah. In front of a uh, News Corp, isn't that what the building is called? Yeah, Out yeah, in front yeah, of yeah. Fox News. Yeah. Which was lit in a ceremony called the All-American Christmas Special on Fox News. Okay. Of course. The second tree. Well, Or did they like the first no, tree? No, the one that, that burned was lit during an all-american christmas special and when you mean lit you don't mean by the not on fire yeah not no. the fire no. lighting of the with tree. red white and blue lights uh, the all-american christmas tree all of, it's all american y'all but now that tree burned baby. and it's it's burned and it's gone and uh they're definitely milking this they're using oh this as God. an opportunity to talk about the attack on Seriously, the Christmas tree. Fox News treated this the, a homeless man who was um, in a health mental health crisis. Apparently, it wasn't politically motivated. The NYPD has said so. He lit the tree on fire, mm-hmm. and Fox News covered this like it was fucking nine eleven, <laughs> and it was it was bell to bell. The attack on Christmas! They're coming for the Jesus! They lost their minds. I mean, I think you're being a little hyperbolic in terms of covering it like 9-11, but I will say that... They they acted like it was like a a real news item when it was just a thing that happened outside their building. Yeah, sure. The the Fox company's chief executive, Suzanne Scott, came out and said, quote, we will not let this deliberate and brazen act of cowardice deter us. We are in the process of rebuilding and installing a new tree as a message that there can be peace, light, and joy, even during a dark moment like this. A dark moment. A dude lit your tree on fire, lady. Uh, Excuse me. The brazen act of cowardice will not deter them. Yeah, will not deter them. And then they had a second ceremony, right? Where, like, they broadcast the deal where they put up the new tree. Yeah. Though I saw screenshots from it, like mm-hmm. this ecumenical gathering of different faiths. or I don't know. Maybe it was all just Christians. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But seriously, they mil- you use the perfect word. They milk this fucking thing. Well, speaking of our favorite Ainsley Earhart oh, on here we Fox are. and Friends. What about the majority? Okay, the majority. Protecting the minority. She actually went on a little rant during Fox and Friends and talked about how the Christmas tree is a symbol, among other things. She listed several things, but she included freedom and Hanukkah. The Christmas tree. Correct. 
is a symbol. I mean, the Hanukkah thing is just fucking dumb, dumb time here. But a symbol of freedom. Yeah. Huh. Mm-hmm. I wonder if Ains- it's also about Jesus. She said. I-, I wonder if Ainsley Earhart. What about the majority? Okay, the majority so tired of protecting the minority is aware of the scripture in Jeremiah that that prohibits the taking of a tree from the woods, bringing it into your house, and adorning it with with silver and gold. Mm-hmm. I wonder if she's aware of that scripture in her Bible. Well, listen. According to Ainsley. Quote, it's a tree that unites us, that brings us together. It is about the Christmas spirit. It is about the holiday season. Ugh. It is about Jesus. It is about Hanukkah. All right. It is about everything we stand for as a country and being able to worship the way you want to worship. I'm going to repeat that to you as <laughs> I heard it, okay? Buzzword, buzzword, buzzword. <laughs> Freedom America. Buzzword, buzzword, buzzword. Passion, anger, buzzword. I thought you were going to do the Charlie Brown teacher impression. Which, what did you think it was the other day? We don't need to get into (laughs) what I thought it was the other day. That's not important. You were like, right now. Dirt, we, dirt, dirt, it's wah, 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 wah. You know, some of us don't know how (laughs) to do that impression, and that's okay. That's all right. We can't all be good at impressions like you, Jesse D. Like you. Why did I think you were going to say a good impressioner? <laughs> uh, because you think very poorly of me. No, that's not why. Yeah. Yep, that's exactly why. It's an attack on the my lovely, person. Lovely, the talented, the scholarly. Mm-hmm. Fox News, man. <laughs> I mean, so I, if anybody needed any more evidence that they're just there to inflame passions, no pun intended, inflame. Mm hmm. Uh, to stir up the passions of Christians who feel like they're a minority in their country mm-hmm. when they, they make up a full 70% of the population. Mm-hmm. This is it. This is it. I mean, they've continued with the war on Christmas even after Donald Trump declared that he won it. You can now say Merry Christmas. Anyway. Goddamn. Yeah. yeah. So the All-American Christmas tree has been restored and... I think that uh, hopefully they can move on from this tragedy that has occurred. And I'm glad that Ainsley Earhart uh, got her her little speech made. Yeah. What about this the country? majority? Okay, the I'm majority. So tired of protecting the minority. God damn that woman. Anyway, that's what's happening. <laughs> well, the weather outside is frightful. Mm. Ugh. That's not the first holiday song that's going to be on the show today. Oh, that's right. So buckle in, everybody. Another super winner who will be, I believe, asshole of today. So stay tuned for that. Correct. Stay tuned for that. Don't touch those dials like that's a thing anymore. Uh, Let's get to some listener communication. Uh, We've got an email and a couple of voicemails to get to. I believe we should start with this voicemail. A question from a listener about uh, something that happened a few episodes ago. Hey, Jesse. Hey, Brittany. I was just listening to the podcast 578. I had the thought, like, did you guys ever make the Weedly D shirt? Because that would be awesome. Weedly fucking D. Yeah, just a random thought. You guys should make that shirt. Okay, bye. Weedly D! Or if you prefer Britney's more muted version. Weedly D. Uh, we actually 
uh, did create a Weedly D. It's we did. Like a, looks like a definition. Mm-hmm. We, we've sold a few of them. Yep. Uh, we will put a link to it on the Facebook page. So go to I Doubt It Podcast on Facebook. I think we'll also just put a link up on Twitter. How about in the show notes? We're... We'll put in the show notes too, everybody. All right. We love putting stuff in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's our favorite. Mm-hmm. We're show noting it up. Yeah. Show noting it in a drafty dome, huh? So what's more concerning to me about this call, and, and I think more important to address, is why is this caller going back and listening to very old episodes of the show? Well, I think the caller, because of the hard question mark mm-hmm. on the end of the episode number, I think they're incorrect because we did, you did the Weedly D thing, maybe fifth, maybe not even fifty episodes ago. So you know, just uh, didn't didn't uh, didn't dictate the right episode. Okay, not that it's a problem. It's just you know, it makes me uncomfortable when that happens. So I'm because just curious. Of our, our ever evolving viewpoints on things. Sure. Yeah. That should be. We should be proud of that. Yeah, we <laughs> we should be really proud of it. <laughs> Super good to be like that. All right. Well, let's get to an email. All right. So we have an email from Anonymous. And remember, you can always email us and say Anonymous, and we will keep it anonymous. Yeah, we like we know who emailed, but we, we respect... Oh, no. It came from Anonymous, anonymous at anonymous.com. Right. Oh, wow. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we, I want to drive the point home that even assholes who have called in mm-hmm. and written in... Uh, we don't reveal their information. Like people do it to me on YouTube all the time, and I'm not. We're not going to put somebody on blast. Is that true? Is uh, everyone that has called in and been an if asshole? If they wanted to be anonymous, oh, if they want, okay, we all keep right. them anonymous. Got it. You're like, what about all those people we secretly dox? I know. I'm like, wait a minute. Are we really holding to that? Okay. We're for sure holding to that. Hello, Jesse and Brittany. Hope all is well. I'm a longtime listener, but this is my first time writing into the show. I've been an educator for almost 20 years and spent the last seven or so supporting teachers in turnaround schools throughout the Northeast Corridor of Florida, over 20 counties. I have to say, I've never seen morale lower. My primary role was to support teachers at an instructional level, but this has slowly transformed to more of an emotional support role. At this point, I'm not even sure how many teachers I've talked out of quitting the profession this school year. The overwhelming majority of schools I support are in turnaround status. Parenthetically, our schools are graded A through F in Florida. Ds and Fs get you into T turnaround status. I cut my teeth as a teacher in the Bronx, so I know a thing or two about tough environments, but this is a different animal. Teachers are overworked, underpaid, and oftentimes underappreciated. They are routinely being asked to do more with less. In my educational circle, we talk about public education being on the brink of implosion. My question to you, do you think this might be intentional, if you even agree? Whether it's the desire to privatize schools or just continue to suppress knowledge, after all, why would you want a well-informed voting block? There is a problem that needs to be addressed. You can see this with the national teacher shortage that is plaguing our schools. Anyway, thank you for doing what you do. Love the show. Brittany's the best part. Anonymous. P.S. Love the show. Brittany's the best part. A little slow on the uptake there, Jesse D. P.S. I was recently the subject of a school board meeting. A teacher and I developed a social studies unit on current events related to various child refugees around the world. This was tagged as CRT by a group of parents. Fortunately, it was quickly dismissed by the board. What has happened to us? 
Ugh. So a little bit of a CRT update there. Yes. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know how you feel about this, Brittany, but I, I think that uh, there is probably not among the Republican electorate, there is probably not a move afoot to privatize all public schools. However, I, I wouldn't go as far as to say that there aren't certainly disparate elements within the Republican Party, individuals who have that as their unstated objective. But as a as a as a as a matter of public policy, as a matter of, of Republican platform, I, I don't think that's I don't think that's it. I, I, mean, I mean, certainly they are in support of privatizing uh, a large swath. They love their charter schools. They love their voucher programs, um, and they they love defunding, not giving as much money as is as warranted. Listen, our entire system relative to public schools and the funding of public schools is is fucked. It's 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 uh, back asswards or bass backwards or whatever the stupid thing is. It's I mean because it's based on l- largely funded by property taxes, which is a locality thing. So if you live somewhere wealthy, your schools are fully funded. If you live somewhere that's not as wealthy, your schools are more poorly funded. We need some uniformity across the board so our children have um, a hand up. Teachers are our first line of defense against greater, more systemic societal problems. Poverty, incarceration, all of these things. And it's, it's, it's been shown through statistics and study after study after study that pre-K education, if we fund pre-K programs, those children fare far better in life than those who don't have the benefit of pre-K education. Yeah, so I think Anonymous is... When Anonymous says the the morale is low and then kind of goes into, is this, this being on the brink of implosion in public education, is this intentional? I guess I'm wondering from Anonymous, like who is the culprit behind those intentional moves to create this situation? And... I would assume that's been long in the making because this this isn't new. I mean, morale may be the lowest that Anonymous has has seen it in the 20 years as an educator. But hasn't that been something that we talk about a lot with the teaching profession in terms of not being given the resources to do the job? Yeah. You, you always see memes for years. You've seen them about teachers having to pay out of pocket for their supplies, right. yeah. things like that. So. The investments for school teachers haven't been there for a long time. So maybe this is also just kind of cumulative effects of that, of people reaching their breaking point, which you're seeing in many other professions. This is also happening in healthcare. People who are very frustrated that they don't want to work in healthcare anymore after being in substantial uh, amounts of debt to get the education to be able right. to work in healthcare, but having to leave it because they're so frustrated after dealing with the pandemic and people refusing to get vaccinated and the stress and not having enough people on their staff. So you're seeing this in in many different areas, I think, in terms of the population. Think about it from this perspective. Imagine being in a job. I mean, the, the term thankless job gets thrown around a lot, but imagine being in a job that is critical. It's a critical, important job. And not only are you unappreciated, you're maligned and attacked. And teachers and healthcare workers right now in America are both, they fit that bill. Mm-hmm. And it's it's got to be, I mean, demoralizing uh, is, is, the apt, is the apt descriptor because yeah. I cannot imagine 
continuing on to do something, even if it's something I'm passionate about, if I'm being attacked from all sides. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No good. Thanks for the email. Absolutely. Uh, and if listen, if other listeners have an opinion about the, the, the specific question, we would encourage you to sound off. You can call, leave us a voicemail, 657-464-7609. Of course, you can email a voice memo from your smartphone to idoubtit at dollamore.com. Next up, a question. We um, Last episode, we talked about measures by which to deal with family members who were refusing to get vaccinated. I took um, what some think is a harsh stand by boxing those family members out until or even as an incentive for them to get vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And we had a call about that very thing. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Brittany. This is Catherine from Southern California. I'm a couple episodes behind, so if this isn't relevant anymore, please feel free to politely tell me to fuck off. I Never. wanted to talk about the my experience with having to deal with unvaccinated family. It's honestly been pretty rough. I have a two-year-old son who's not eligible for the vaccine, so I've had to have that conversation with two of my sisters who are not vaccinated that unfortunately they cannot um, be around him. Uh, We miss Thanksgiving with them and we'll be missing Christmas with them. My experience with it is that it does absolutely no good other than the fact that I'm keeping my son safe, which is enough for me, but it's been hard and I'm the only one in my family who's made this stand. So they're free to hang out with my parents to see other people in the family and unfortunately that makes it harder for me to see my parents as well because um, they haven't gotten their booster yet and I don't want to risk my son being around them after they've been spending hours and hours with my unvaccinated sisters Um, and I'm also very very close with my sister so I honestly miss them and I'm sick of this whole pandemic I'm sick of people not being able to get their heads out of their ass. So if anybody else has anything that worked for them, I'd love to hear it because I'm just kind of over it. Uh, thanks. Brittany's the best part. Bye. Love the show. Brittany's the best part. Bye. So Catherine is definitely not alone. This is something that a lot of people are struggling with as they try to negotiate what the holidays are going to look like Yeah. with either friends or family that are still unvaccinated. I do wonder how, if at all, the new variant will impact people's decision making on whether or not to get vaccinated. Maybe the possibility (laughs) exists, here I am being optimistic, (laughs) that people will start to think, you know, another year of this, really, maybe maybe I should get vaccinated. I don't know. That's me being very hopeful. But I heard Catherine say several things that I think are important to focus on. She said that she's focused on keeping her son safe. Mm -hmm. She made this decision to distance herself from her unvaccinated family members in order to keep her son safe. And that she has realized that talking to them, I'm assuming with factual information, like Mm -hmm. fact-based conversations, is not moving the needle at all. And that that is quite frustrating for her. And when she says, is there more that can be done? I'm not sure there's more that can be done on Catherine's end. It seems like the family members are the ones who aren't giving a lot back. Does that make sense? Yeah, I just wrote down... They're making the decision. 
it's not that Catherine has made a decision and then they have to suffer with that. It's she is doing what's right to to protect her child and her family, mm-hmm. her immediate family. They've made the decision. They've decided they don't want to see her her kid. Mm-hmm. It's I would listen. What is it, Doctor Laura? Our over here advice column. Uh, but I would I think you should sleep easy and rest easy at night, Catherine. You've done everything you can. You've done everything that is expected of you as a parent to rear a child that is healthy and and um, safe. And it's it's your family members who have chosen a different path. So you have nothing to not nothing more to do. Well, and I I know this wouldn't be a great substitute because it sounds like Catherine really wants to be with them on the holidays. But I also wonder if there's a possibility to negotiate maybe a different type of holiday where, again, kind of going back to this virtual thing that we're now all used to, where Catherine can join the family festivities on Zoom or something like that so that she's at least a part of it. But also signals that you love them you want to be a part you're right. not it's not like you're cutting them out of your life it's right. there are limitations now and because of their choices you can't be there in person yeah and i think jesse when you on the previous episode mentioned something about like almost like staging an intervention yeah. with unvaccinated family members and i think some people took that to mean like cutting people off for good because they aren't getting vaccinated. I think in the in the metaphor, I said, you know, look, if you're not going to accept the help we're giving you, I'm deleting your number out of my phone. I think that's the thing that I said. Mm-hmm. And that's not like a permanent, you're done forever. It's until you accept the help, until you're willing to do the work to get yourself healthy, and whether that be addiction or whether that be get vaccinated so you don't die, you don't pass the illness on to others, you don't put my family at risk, then, you know, we can't be... I still stand by that. I, I think that that's a, it, it's a, a valid uh, message to be sent. But again, you're not saying it's cutting people off. You're saying it's a boundary, which is really what yeah. Catherine is putting in place here, too. There's this boundary that she has in place where she wants to protect her child. Yeah, and good and for she's, you, And Catherine. she's not going to be in situations where her child's health is put at risk. Right. Or other people's health is being put at risk. And so that's a boundary for her. And if that means she can't attend holidays with the family, then, you know, I guess she's saying, I guess that's what that means. She doesn't prefer that. She would want it to be different. Yeah. But if that's the way it's going to be, it sounds like that's that's her boundary. Listen, we're, we're doing a similar thing. We're having kind of a going away party. Gathering. Gathering. Yeah, I don't want to say We're not calling it a party because we're not like... We're not serving food. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we're not, yeah. We're not doing the legwork for it. Yeah, right, right, right. So you can stop by and hang out. That's actually exactly what it is. It's <laughs> you can stop by and hang out. That's what it is in the in the little invite group on Facebook. Yeah. But because of all the things that are going on, um, we've made the choice. We've communicated to the group mm-hmm. that not only do you have to have your two vaccines, you got to be boosted. And mm-hmm. listen, we love everybody who's been invited, but if you're not boosted. We're not going to put ourselves or the extended group of guests that we've invited, put them at risk either. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's not hateful. It's it's just these are – it's a new reality we live in. Well, and it's also two of the people coming are going to be kids that yeah. aren't eligible for the vaccine. Yeah. So especially in that situation. But even if the kids weren't coming, it, it would still be the requirement. Right. But just as an example. And the new – 
fully vaccinated definition, there's already talk of updating it to include the booster. So that that's something that could be on the way. Yeah. So, uh, listen, I'm uh, not to sound condescending, but I'm proud. I think I think that you're doing the right thing, Catherine. And you, uh, while it's natural to ask questions, what more can I do? I have ruled. I just get bang my gavel. <laughs> I have ruled that there is nothing more you can do. As I wag my finger in the air triumphantly. And it's it's hard. There's been a discussion that's taking place on Twitter lately regarding the issue of estranged family members. And I know that Catherine's situation isn't quite that. She's not estranged from these family members. She's taking a, a break, basically, from seeing them in person. But it sounds like she's still in communication with them and is close to them. I think she even used that phrase, close to them. And... Even in the case of estranged family members, it's not an easy thing to do when you, again, set those boundaries in order to keep yourself healthy, in order to do things that are best for you. Yeah. And whether it's unvaccinated family members that you're keeping distance from or abusive family members that you are having to cut off, it's important that you do what is healthy for you and what has you feeling most comfortable. Can I add this too? And this just came to mind, and maybe this is shitty, but, you know, that's my role on the show is to say the shitty stuff. Um, um, it would seem to me that um, your child's health and welfare and safety and your own health and welfare and safety is not an important enough metric for your family to do what's right to get vaccinated. It's not important enough for them to see your kid. It, listen, if you're, if you're not vaccinated at this point, you don't have a legitimate medical reason. You're a shitty person. And that goes for uh, uh, a myriad members of my family. It goes for all kinds of people. It's not just... See? I told you. Yeah. Well, no, I was... I mean, before you said whatever you were going to say... <laughs> Views and opinions expressed by Jesse Dollamore are solely those of Jesse Dollamore and do not reflect the views and opinions of Brittany Page, who is a far superior person and much more measured and reasonable in her views and analysis. What was that? <laughs> well, before you said what you were going to say, I was like, what is coming? <laughs> what is on its way? We, I mean, we just put things in different terms, so... That's one term that you could use. and It's the term I did use. It is the term that you did use. So, so they, oh, I was going to wrap it well, up. Well, yeah, ahead. let's have the audience weigh in on this, though, because like I said, there's many people out there that are struggling with this same thing, especially as another holiday season rolls around and yeah. they're facing a, a decision making process of who they're going to invite over, or who they're going to spend time around. So if if like Catherine, you are struggling with how to negotiate the relationship with your unvaccinated family members, please call in and give feedback so that the larger community of listeners, including Catherine, can be assisted during this time. 657-464-7609 or I doubt it at dollamore.com. Do we need to get a disclaimer that like any kind of quote unquote advice I dispense is not like professional advice and you should seek Oh, we do professional. Need that. We probably do. Well, you, because you are a professional, like I'm just a fucking dumb dumb. I don't need to say this isn't legal advice because I'm not a lawyer, you know what I mean? But yeah. you you actually have letters behind your name. We probably should do that. Maybe we'll have somebody whip up some language. I, I tell you what, uh, in in with my extensive legal background, I will craft <laughs> a statement that covers us legally. Yeah, <laughs> perfect. I trust you to do that. 
fantastic. Well, we have some follow-up, Brittany Page. We do. Uh, related to all of the abortion news. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there was an 8-1 vote today. The Supreme Court ruled that abortion providers can challenge SB-8. This is the Texas heartbeat bill. And, I mean, that's that's what a lot of headlines are saying. But I think it's important to say, to say that the Supreme Court, in making this decision, is actually leaving SB-8 as is. As, right, on the table. It's active. And now there is kind of this roadmap for other people to follow, other states to follow, if they want to yeah, yeah, yeah. outlaw abortion. We're coming on the air with breaking news. The U.S. Supreme Court has just issued a decision on the Texas law that prohibits abortion after about six weeks. We want to go to our justice correspondent, Pete Williams, now, who has the decision. Pete, good morning. Lester, the Supreme Court has just allowed lawsuits against SB 8, the Texas abortion law, to go ahead in the lower courts. Now, to be clear, this is not a decision that overturns SB 8. This simply opens the spigot now to allow lawsuits to proceed in state court in Texas challenging the constitutionality of the law. Remember what was unusual about this law. Texas could not simply on its own ban abortion after six weeks of pregnancy because that would violate the current Supreme Court rulings that say you can't ban abortion before the age of viability. That issue, by the way, is what's being debated now in the Mississippi case, but the court hasn't ruled on that. So the law of the United States right now is you can't ban abortion after six weeks. So what Texas came up with was a novel plan to allow outsiders, anybody else, private citizens to file lawsuit. So the question for the Supreme Court was, can lawsuits go ahead challenging the structure of the Texas law? And the Supreme Court has just said yes. And I'm trying to decide now what the outcome of the court is. Uh, But it's going to take a while to figure out what the vote is here, Lester. But the bottom line here is these lawsuits can now go ahead in Texas. So don't worry, everybody. We have the count eight to one. And I'm going to ask you in a second, Jesse, if you if you can guess the one person who dissented from the decision to allow abortion providers to sue state licensing officials that are responsible for enforcing elements of SB8, because that's what this decision was. Who was the one? Sonia Sotomayor. No, the one who dissented from allowing abortion providers to sue. Oh, oh, um... Uh, Bart O'Kavanaugh, Boofer Extraordinaire. It was... Amy Coney Barrett. Clarence Thomas. Ah, oh, really? Clarence Thomas was the only member to dissent. Yes. You and mean, uh, Clarence Thomas, the, the same Clarence Thomas whose wife helped fund the buses to the insurrection? That, that Clarence Thomas? Yeah, Clarence Thomas wrote mm. that he actually would have just tossed the case out. That that was his opinion, so that's why he was the dissenter here. We have radicals. On the Supreme Court. And Justice Neil Gorsuch wrote the majority opinion in this case for this eight to one decision. Now, there there was an important dissent from Justice Sotomayor. And in that, she warned that this decision is kind of giving it's a it's a narrow path. Right. Because in my description there, they're allowing abortion providers to sue state licensing officials that are responsible for enforcing elements of of the law in Texas. And her concern in her dissent is that this is kind of giving a roadmap to other states now to 
create, or I think the word that she used is refine their own future version mm-hmm. of a similar bill. Did you like just, Texas. Did you just mention, I was searching my thoughts, did you just mention that in the Texas law, it is it is explicitly stated that it cannot be chal- you cannot sue a member of the Texas government or officials related to this law. They are like indemnified mm. because it's party to party. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I did not mention oh, that. Yeah. So that's a thing is that now they're allowing lawsuits to go forward. So, I mean, that in itself is good. The whole thing is a goddamn mess. But so Justice Sotomayor spoke directly to that and wrote, quote, my disagreement with the court runs far deeper than a quibble over how many defendants these petitioners may sue. The dispute is over whether states may nullify federal constitutional rights by employing schemes like the one at hand. The court indicates that they can so long as they write their laws to more thoroughly disclaim all enforcement by state officials, including licensing officials. This choice to shrink from Texas's challenge to federal supremacy will have far-reaching repercussions. I doubt the court, let alone the country, is prepared for them. And it goes beyond, beyond abortion rights. This is a free speech issue. This could mean California could write the same kind of things surrounding gun laws. And it is something that has conservatives a little edgy, a little freaked out about because of that, because of the Second Amendment and and other other rights. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and and make no mistake, the right to an abortion is a constitutional right. Yes. An upheld Supreme Court constitutional right, just like guns or any other. So. Mm-hmm. Apparently not for long. Not for long. Um, another piece of follow-up? Yeah. So one thing that we have followed are these stories about... Black homeowners who have to, quote unquote, whitewash their homes in order to get the value of the home, an accurate value of the home when it's being appraised. They will hire an appraiser, get an amount that seems too low, and then they will decide, well, let's test this theory and have someone who is white come and act like they are the homeowner when a new appraiser comes by and remove any kind of indication that it's owned by uh, black people. Like they remove photos, they remove artwork, whatever they feel like is going to indicate that the house is not owned by whoever the white person is that's representing themselves as the homeowner. And there's been several of these cases just within the past year. And there is another one now out of Marin County. Tanisha and Paul Austin bought their home in the Marin City area of Northern California in 2016. It came with a coveted view of the bay, but a long to-do list. It just needed a lot of work, um, but we was up to the task. And their work paid off, or so they thought. According to court documents, the Austins added a deck, a gas fireplace, and additional living space. In January of 2020, with the build-out almost finished, they decided to refinance and take some cash out of the property. They got an appraisal. It was right before COVID hit, so the, the, the rates were extremely low. So we were trying to refinance to take advantage of the low rates. And to their surprise, the appraiser wrote in her report that the house was only worth $995,000. We were sick, sick to our stomach. We was upset. We was angered. I was disappointed because, one, I knew that the house was worth more than that. And secondly, because we needed the house to appraise for a certain amount um, in order for us to be able to um, pull out the capital in it. 
And when it didn't come in at that, it was devastating. They suspected that the seeming low ball valuation from an appraiser who happened to be a white woman may have had something to do with their race or their location or both. Marin City has a sizable African-American population, unlike Marin County, which is mostly white. She uh, considered us living in Marin City and devalued our home based off of that. Yeah, um, and it's all blackface. So they decided to put their suspicions to a test. They requested yet another appraisal and got a female friend who was white to come to the house to meet the appraiser to make it look like this was her house. I contacted her and I said, um, we have another, our, our appraisal came in low. We have another appraiser coming. Can you come and be me? But that's not all they did. They also removed any evidence that black people even lived there a process that's been called whitewashing. To doubt everything that resembled that this home belonged to us. Yeah, or to an African-American family. Art, pictures. Even, I would say, even my hair products, I put them away um, so that um, someone would be tipped off by them. A different appraiser, also a white woman, according to the Austins, who visited the house in February of 2020, came back with a valuation of more than $1,482,500, an appraisal 49% higher than the previous one. In dollars, that's a $487,500 difference between two appraisals that came about three weeks apart. In federal court, the Austins have sued the appraiser, Jeanette Miller, who gave them the lower estimate, alleging housing discrimination. Miller did not respond to several requests to either make a statement, grant an interview, or put us in contact with her lawyer. Devaluation of the property values and rights of African Americans and Hispanics is a deeply rooted American tradition that's starting to attract more attention in Washington. And it's not always about million-dollar homes. Andre Perry, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, writes about it. We found that homes in black neighborhoods are underpriced by 23 percent, about 48,000 cumulatively. There's about 156 billion in lost equity in black neighborhoods, 156 billion. So this is also something that we talk about quite a bit, which is the black and white racial wealth gap. And it really is directly related to our conversations about critical race theory and these efforts to suppress actual education in schools because you still have adults walking around who don't believe this is a thing or don't yeah. believe this plays a role in the substantial inequity between or, black and white wealth in or this at country. the very least would chalk this up to oh it was just a mistake mm-hmm. which you you can't look at the history of the united states looking back and say, oh, mistake after mistake after mistake after mistake. This is sinister. This was this was intentional. Well, and we're only, just like police body cameras, we're only now starting to consistently see stories about this happening. So it makes you wonder how yeah. much wealth has been lost, how many opportunities to build wealth have been lost within the black community because of racism. Well, the number they said 156 billion, but but that right there what you just said really cuts to the heart of this, which is wealth transfer, wealth accumulation. So this could have been an opportunity a, a missed opportunity of half a million dollars right that they could pass on to their kids. And then they they in turn could build on and pass on to their kids. Mm-hmm. That is what uh, black families for in the entirety, the history of our country, have been boxed out of, systemically excluded from, and it is a fucking crime. 
And it's still happening today. Yeah. So good for this family, the Austin family, for bringing this lawsuit forward. And hopefully Jeanette Miller, the the woman that they are accusing of violating the Fair Housing Act, is prepared for her day in court. Yeah. Because things do not look good in terms of the evidence yeah. that was laid out there. Really? And, and hopefully, through discovery, they go back to her past track record. Mm. I mean, just like just like abuse with cops. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We'd love to know what you think about this. You can call, leave us a voicemail, 657-464-7609. Of course, you can email a voice memo from your smartphone to idoubtit at dollamore.com. I Doubt It is a listener-supported podcast. Support comes from our most loyal, engaged, intelligent, and good-looking listeners just like you via Patreon. Your support on Patreon for as little as $2 a month would help keep the conversation moving forward one podcast at a time. If you have a few dollars to spare each month, we invite you to help produce the show by joining the Patreon family. Please visit patreon.com slash I doubt it podcast. We would like to give a shout out to our new Patreon supporters, Cynical Guy. Cynical Guy. DPD. DPD. Mark S. Mark S. And Aaron L. Aaron L. You know, Aaron L. also sent us a very lovely message that I would like to read on Patreon. Thank you for making me feel like I'm not the only one that's sane in a completely upside down and insane time we live in. The work you do matters and helps more than you realize. I love how you interact with one another. It's endearing and makes me laugh as well. My heart hurts for the loss of your dog. I'm so very sorry for your loss, but I know you have lots of good memories to share and look forward to hearing them. The best part is both of you and the voice of reason you provide in these scary times. Please allow me to give you both a heartfelt thank you. That's very, very nice. Very nice. Thank you so much, Aaron. We really appreciate that. And rest assured, we watch videos of Pop (laughs) (laughs) several times a day still. We do. Obsessively. My iPhone apparently knows I'm grieving. Yeah. (laughs) And it's just like a reminder, like, hey, here, fun times with pets. Spring 2021, you know? Yeah. So... It's um, nice. We're we will never forget. It's a constant reminder, and we're 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 thrilled and touched by the audience and their their concern about it. They're they're following the journey with us. So thank you very much. Absolutely. We also want to say DPD. We got three emails that you became a Patreon supporter. So they all came in at different times. I don't know if it was a glitch, but we're gonna message you. But. If you don't check your messages, you hear it here, maybe just kind of trying to triangulate this. Yeah, make sure you didn't sign up to give three separate times. We yeah. don't want you being uh, money deducted that you're not intending to give at all. So yes. yeah. go check that and make sure it's, it's squared away. So we also want to say if you became a Patreon supporter anytime before December 9th, your magnets are in the mail. So I just sent out a batch of all the ones that did not go out from the magnet people. And so you should be getting those by next week, I would say. If We're big time now. We've got magnet people. Yes. If you became a Patreon supporter anytime before the 9th and you don't have your magnet by next week, I would say reach out to us, send us a message on Patreon and just say, hey, never got my magnet and I can check my lists, see when yours was supposed to go out and obviously send you another one. So we want to get those out to you. We recently had a Patreon supporter 
delete their pledge, which is fine. It happens. But there's an exit survey and we can see why people delete. Sometimes they leave us a little message like, you know, hey, lost my job, whatever. Yeah. And someone said that they deleted because we didn't give them a promised reward. And I don't know who it was, so I can't track them down, see what happened. But I just want people to know if you feel like you didn't get something that you were owed from Patreon or some sort of thing happened and and you feel like you need something, reach out to us first and let us know because we're happy to try to remedy that. I mean, we just sent out stickers to new Patreon supporters. We are definitely on top of all that in a way that maybe we weren't six months ago. (laughs) So reach out to us. Let us know if you didn't get something and we'll for sure take the steps to remedy that. Even if because you delete, it doesn't matter if you deleted We'll still sting the stickers. Oh, absolutely. And the magnet. That's yeah. not a not a problem at all. For sure. Yeah. Because we love you guys. Yeah, and I know there may have been confusion about like when people were supposed to get the magnet or whatever. So just so you know, if you become a Patreon supporter by the end of December, you will be getting a magnet in the mail. So anyone who becomes a new Patreon supporter by the end of December, you are getting that special magnet. Sweet ass fridge mag. (laughs) All right. We love you guys. We appreciate you so, so much. Stalemocracy. Facing down pessimistic politics with realistic optimism. Let's talk about the latest with Donald Trump. You know, it's, 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 it's great that there has been... Not a ton of Trump talk of late. Yeah. I, I mean, I I still do a fair amount of it on, on YouTube because there's been some breaking headlines. But this one is important because it involves the New York Attorney General um, either preparing to, I think she's already subpoenaed, but sending the subpoena compelling the testimony of Donald Trump in a civil investigation that she is following right now. So what is the New York AG pursuing here? Well, we learned today that she wants to depose former President Trump as part of her civil investigation into his namesake family real estate firm. The attorney general's office has been investigating whether the Trump organization committed some kind of financial fraud over the way it valued its real estate holdings. They told lenders one thing, they told tax authorities another thing. And Letitia James signaled today that she wanted to depose former President Trump early next month by January 7th. January 7th. Okay, awfully close to another significant day, January 6th. We'll come back to that in a minute. What kind of documentation does the state AG's office have? Oh, they have all the all the records about what the, uh, the Trump organization did when they were talking to lenders seeking loans, how they valued holdings perhaps one way, and then when they were seeking tax breaks and the like, and, and then when it came to actually paying taxes, what did the Trump organization say the, uh, the, the values were then? And they have to compare column A and column B to see if they match. This same information is being scrutinized by prosecutors with the Manhattan District Attorney's Office to see if criminal charges are warranted. And we know that the former president fought the Manhattan DA's office all the way to the Supreme Court twice in order to to try and block access to his tax returns, ultimately unsuccessfully. So there's the criminal side and and with James now pursuing a deposition on the civil side. I don't want to put you on the spot, but I kind of do. What are the chances on a scale of one to 10 that a criminal case is brought? 
There, there's a chance there's a criminal case. The, the Manhattan DA, who is leaving office by the end of the year, will have to decide whether there's enough to bring a case against the former president now or whether that has to kick to his successor. And, and they're looking at all of the documents, but they also need a critical part to address, and that is the former president's intent. It may be one thing to value your holdings differently. Was there an intent to evade the law when you did it? And that's what the decision is going to And that's to really on. key to your point from a legal perspective. Have to have intent in order to, to make it a crime. So there, there are several several moving parts here that, um, well, one is Donald Trump has signaled that he very likely will plead the fifth, which is hilarious because he is quoted as saying that only guilty people plead the fifth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but also the Weird fact- thing to say when if, if you're committing crimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. But also- you don't just get to plead the fifth if you don't feel like testifying, if you got a cold that day, if you don't agree with who the judge is or whatever. If your testimony is compelled, you can only plead the fifth if your testimony will incriminate you. So really, by signaling that he's prepared to plead the fifth, he's signaling, I did wrong shit. If I testify, I will incriminate myself. And it's a constitutional right to not be compelled to testify against oneself. Mm-hmm. So the, the other thing is, the, the, the obviously, the civil side is Letitia James or the AG. The criminal side is is Cyrus Vance, who's the, the Manhattan DA. If he pleads the fifth, it can't be used against him in the criminal trial. But if he testifies, what is learned can be... Uh, it just It's just all of these moving parts... And it'll be nice to have Donald Trump sit for a deposition. This will be the second time since he's been president. Mm-hmm. And uh, listen, I'm, I've been pretty vocal about it. My displeasure with federal authorities, with uh, Merrick Garland specifically. Yeah. And uh, it, is, it is nice to know that there are people in positions of power who are prepared to hold Donald Trump accountable, whether that be Letitia James or Cyrus Vance Jr., because Merrick Garland's a fucking asleep on the job. Mm. Joe Biden is not forcing this issue. It, this is not about persecution of political opponents. Mm-hmm. This is about real legal wrongdoing. And if we have to get him on technicalities of, of tax evasion and, and bank fraud or whatever, that's fine. But there are real crimes left on the table that are not being pursued right now, or ostensibly, apparently not, um, obstruction of justice, the violation of the Emoluments Clause, which the Supreme Court did say, well, it's moot, he's not president anymore. But there are all all kinds of things that can be pursued, um, far and away from even the attempted overthrow of the United States government and the assault on our very democracy, the, the systematic plan that they had to to disenfranchise 81 million Americans. Do you think that is why there's not an appetite to move on this in a more substantive way? Because of politics? Well, yeah, because of the fear of looking as though you're going after your political opponents and just the optics of that. Um, yeah, yeah, I think it's wrapped up in that. It's also wrapped up in the fact that Joe Biden has signaled many, 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 many times his... This nostalgia he has for the bygone era of of bipartisanship and, oh, my friend from across the aisle, this nonsense that just doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. Well, not when we have a Republican Party that is intent on destroying democracy. Right, which even just yesterday it was revealed 
that information, evidence that was turned over to the House Select Committee from Mark Meadows. In his emails is a PowerPoint presentation. I've got two sheets of it, two pages of it right here. A very wordy PowerPoint presentation, by the way. Well, this was to be a a presentation given to the House and the Senate of the Republican members. Too much text on the slide is what I'm saying. It's very text heavy. The design. Yeah, it's not... It's not an effective PowerPoint presentation. Are you bringing your your grad school skills to bear here? No, this is just common sense about PowerPoints, right? Oh, is it? Yeah. I I didn't know that there was common sense. I've never, I don't think I've ever opened the PowerPoint program, so (laughs) I don't know these things. Okay, all right. So this is options for January 6th. Vice President Pence seats Republican electors over the objections of Democrats in states where fraud occurred. They wanted Vice President Pence, these are all options, to seat Republican electors who were not, they were not um, official, legitimate electors, just randos Mm -hmm. that the Republican Party wanted to put in there. Uh, Vice President Pence rejects the electors from states where fraud occurred, there was no fraud, causing the election to be decided by remaining electoral votes. This is just bananas. Like, oh, we don't want these electors. Let's just count the others, and then it's a majority. Mm -hmm. 270, that's the number you need to get to. Uh, VP Pence delays the decision in order to allow for a vetting and subsequent counting of all the legal paper ballots. So they want to um, nullify any electronic voting records and only count paper ballots. I mean, it's just... It's just a panoply of of, of extra constitutional nonsense. Mm -hmm. And then here are recommendations. Brief senators and congressmen on foreign interference. What what foreign interference did Republicans want people briefed on? Mm -hmm. This is the most disconcerting element. Declare a national security emergency. This is akin, different language, to like a martial law type of situation. Right. We don't know what they had envisioned, but declaring a national security emergency in order to stop the certification, in order that the new president, the new duly elected president is not seated, is not put into office. Mm-hmm. Never happened in the history of the country. Yeah. Foreign influence and control of electronic voting systems. Declare electronic voting in all states invalid. And then legal and genuine paper ballots counts uh, or constitutional remedy delegated to Congress. It, it is, if this does not freak you out, if this does not give you pause, that we were on the verge of losing our very democracy, if we haven't already lost it because of the fact that Democrats don't want to do the work that it takes to stop Republicans, this is what's on the table. This is what we're going to be dealing with in 2022. This is what we're going to be certainly dealing with in 2024. Whether Trump is the candidate or not, this is what they're setting up. Well, and I believe that was that PowerPoint presentation was dated for one day before the Capitol riot, right? Yes, that's right. And so I'm 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 being reminded of all of the talk over whether or not what happened on January 6th was a coup attempt. Remember all of that? People yeah. people were very reluctant to say this was a coup. Yeah, there's still media outlets who don't use the word insurrection. Right. Nonsense. So I guess the question now is what's going to come of this? I mean, when when you do a search to see which media outlets are covering 
this information the about PowerPoint this PowerPoint. Yeah. It is not widespread. Yeah. I mean, thus far, I don't see an article in the Washington Post, the New York Times. I see it in Newsweek and Rolling Stone. Well, the reporter was, who tweeted it was a Guardian reporter, that's I right. believe. He, he's a congressional reporter for, for the Guardian. Right. Which, by the way, has done some stellar work in this regard related to all of this. Mm-hmm. Leave it to the Brits and their investigative I, mean, I would assume it's their premier investigative uh, paper, yeah. The Guardian. Yeah. So, uh, something to be concerned about. Absolutely. Uh, next up is something near and dear to Britney's heart that uh, I think is important. And it also kind of illustrates the weird divide between Republicans and Democrats, but also between like traditional middle of the road Democrats. And a new era of progressive Democrats. Yes, because New York City has opened its first supervised injection sites. And for those who may not know what that means, they are basically overdose prevention centers. They are places where people can come and inject drugs in an environment where they can receive medical attention if it is needed. They can be connected with other community resources. They can be referred to detox. They can be referred to inpatient treatment if they are open to that. But the main purpose of it is to create an environment where this is contained and people can use in a safe manner. Right now at 530, the city opens two supervised drug injection sites in hopes of reducing overdose deaths. Good evening once again. I'm Maurice Dubois. Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm Christine Johnson. Those overdose overdose prevention sites are up and running in Manhattan today, allowing users to inject drugs under medical supervision. CBS 2's Jesse Mitchell explains these are the first facilities of their kind in the nation to officially open. Three weeks ago, I reported the city was still weighing community buy-in and the federal legality of overdose prevention sites, but the ultimate decision came down to saving lives. People talk about people should recover, people should stop using drugs. If they don't live, then they don't get the opportunity. Sam Rivera is executive director of the newly formed On Point NYC, a combination of two established service providers in Washington Heights and East Harlem. When the doors opened, dozens of users showed up to use these new booths. Three of them almost overdosed the first day, but were saved by the facility. I wish this was around. I grew up in the Lower East Side, and I remember in the 70s walking through Avenue B, Avenue C, and different areas, walking past dead people in the street. All right, no one could, could deny that. One user named China tells me her friend died of an overdose a few weeks ago. Not only does she now feel protected by this new site, she says it will also help protect neighborhood kids by providing a private place to inject and eventually smoke drugs. Some kids walk past and be like, oh, mommy, look, they're smoking crack. Mom, what's that? They stop and stare. And it's not cute. I don't think it's cute. But, you know, it's each his own. I wouldn't do it. Now you don't have to do that. Now I have to. The city is already facing legal challenges. In a letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland today, Congresswoman Nicole Maliotakis objected, citing that this past January, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that it is a federal crime to open a supervised injection site or consumption room for illegal drug use. The city's overdose prevention site champion, Dr. Chinazo Cunningham, points out that more people died from overdoses in 2020 than any year in history. It's unclear what's going to happen at the federal government. Um, what I do know is that we are in the deadliest epidemic ever in terms of drug overdoses, and we don't have time to wait. 
while the federal government decides whether to take on the case, the two sites in Manhattan are open for business right now, Monday through Friday, 9 to 8, 9 to 4 on the weekends. Maurice, Christine. Absolutely fascinating, Jesse. Thank you. Jesse, thank you. So there have been 100,000 deaths in the past 12 months in the United States. And in New York City alone, we're talking 2,000 in the past 12 months. And in just the first few days that they, that these uh, two injection sites were opened, nine overdoses were reversed. That means that nine lives were saved in yeah. just the first few days that this overdose prevention site was opened. And... Like they talked about in the news package, there have already been legal challenges, and we're we're going to talk about some legislation to defund these centers in a second. But I used to be very puritanical about drugs, and my friends would make fun of me when I was younger that I would agree with everything and reefer madness. Like that was the level yeah, that yeah, I was yeah. at. I was very puritanical, and part of that in the work that I have done on myself, I've understood to be a, a protective mechanism that I put in place. So that based on my genetic vulnerabilities, I would stay away from drugs and alcohol until my brain was more developed and I was more uh, assured that I wouldn't descend into addiction. Which is a, a fantastically scientific approach that you kind of developed even as a kid. Yeah, so it was kind of this protective mechanism to become puritanical to say all drugs are bad, okay, and stay away from them. <laughs> now, I am a tremendous advocate of harm reduction strategies, which supervised injection sites are. It's a harm reduction strategy. It is apparent that what is happening in this country is not working. And you think about 100,000 deaths in the past 12 months from overdoses and that's 100,000 people. And that, I mean, there are ripple effects from those yeah, deaths. Yeah. It goes outward from there. It's it's the families and the friends who are connected to that person. It's the people who were treating that person. Maybe their therapists. Maybe the people that worked with them in drug addiction or detox centers who are affected by that loss. And I've seen negative comments on Twitter from people just about this story about nine overdose be overdoses being reversed where people say, great, where are those people going to be in a year? They'll probably be dead in a year anyway. Right. And I cannot imagine having such a callous view toward other human beings. I mean, the only explanation that I can find is that these people don't know anyone who struggles with addiction. They don't know anyone who has used heroin. I have. And I, I have worked with people who have survived addiction, who have survived overdoses, and to see people talk so callously and dismissive, dismissively about people who have the ability to radically change their lives and help other people with their story of addiction. I mean, even aside from that, it's just they're human beings. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. deserve help. They deserve assistance. And what we're doing is not working. And the benefits of these centers are that it reduces overdoses. You're seeing that with nine overdoses being reversed in the first few days. In the first few days. You see a lot of the concerns that these rich people have about San Francisco, for example, right? With like needles in the street. You always hear these stories. Oh yeah, Tommy Lahren still won't shut the fuck up about the needles in the street. Well, then they should be hap happy yeah. that places like this exist where people feel welcome. How, how? What am I going to tell my kids? 
they feel welcome. They feel respected. They feel like compassionate people work there who actually give a shit about them. And it makes them want to come back and it makes them engage. And that increases the potential that they will accept a referral for a detox center or for substance use treatment. A possible pathway to treatment. Absolutely. Which for the party of every life is sacred and the sanctity of human life to be so well we've witnessed it with the covid thing mm-hmm. well they're going to die anyway old people die brr, brr, brr. the same thing here yeah if, if every life is intrinsically important and we're all endowed by our creator with all of these rights and 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 god knew can count the hairs on your head blah, blah all of this stuff from the same party that says those things to dismiss that nine lives were saved their opinion doesn't matter. Well, and what took me from puritanical to rah-rah safe consumption sites is just the evidence. I mean, there's a body of evidence to support that these are beneficial practices. These exist in Europe and Canada. They have for years. And the evidence suggests that these are beneficial in reducing deaths in in various improvement, reducing hospital costs, various things. And in spite of all of that, there is now a move, a concerted move, by Republicans in the state of New York to defund these supervised injection sites. An update tonight on newly opened supervised injection centers in Manhattan. Congressman Lee Zeldin and Congresswoman Nicole Maliotakis have introduced new legislation to defund the facilities. The centers in Washington Heights and East Harlem allow users to inject illegal drugs as nurses and other staff monitor them and provide addiction treatment. The proposed bill would withhold federal funding from city, state, or private entities that operate supervised injection sites, saying it is in violation of the Controlled Substances Act. So I misspoke there. I said it was a statewide uh, effort. That's a that's a federal effort. Um, hopefully, hopefully, I'll say it again. Hopefully, there are not enough Democrats to go on board with the Republicans who would try to defund this. Um, and also, thankfully, we have a a three pronged approach to getting legislation passed because I maybe I'm going out on a limb, but I don't think Joe Biden would sign this. Mm-hmm. Um. Which is very unfortunate. To, it would need to get through the se- the House, then it would need to get through the Senate, and then it would go to the president's desk. There's enough stopgap measures in place, and hopefully us illuminating it and others like us illuminating this issue will change some hearts and minds um, and to decalcify some hearts about this issue. Well, and if people are interested in science, if they're interested in evidence-based beliefs, then, I mean, look into it yourself. But yeah, yeah, yeah. but ensure that you're finding the experts in the field who are representing the information to you in a in a way that is accurate. Because if you turn to experts in this field, what they say is we need more of these. These will save more lives. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the important message. Yeah, we'd love to know what you think about this. Six five seven four six four seventy six zero nine. Of course, you can email a voice memo from your smartphone to I doubt it at dollamore.com. It's the asshole of today. Bridget. Bridget is what she goes by. Uh, a Mariah Carey impersonator. Oh, this lady. And she's not really a Mariah Carey impersonator, but you'll hear the song. And she appeared at a San Diego County Board of Supervisors meeting, created a little Christmas tune about vaccine mandates. 
This is her preparing to speak to the Board of Supervisors. Bridget, let's end this emergency. I don't want a lot for Christmas. Just body autonomy. Oh I don't God. care about the variants because of natural immunity. Uh. I just want my freedom now. The Constitution will show us how. Make my dreams come true. Mm. <laughs> and the state of emergency and acknowledge early treatment she's pointing around the room ivermectin not just horse paste and hydroxychloroquine vitamin c and vitamin d then the zinc and quercetin. I won't wear a useless mask. I don't need to stay at home. And my kids should go to school. We don't need to be alone. Ugh. I just want my freedom now. The Constitution will show us how. Make my dreams come true. Baby, I am emergency. Let's have a happy holiday, everybody. Hey, everybody. Uh, l- let me tell you, that's not just an assault on science and facts. That's an assault on singing on key. That I was going to say, did she hit um, any of the notes in the song? She hit all of them and more. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will be waiting for her featured guest appearance on Joe Rogan's ne- next podcast. Who are these dummies that are showing up in a serious... I mean, if you want your opinion on the record, yeah. I mean, she's clearly just going for a viral moment, right? She doesn't. She wants. She wanted that to be all over the internet and be widely mocked by but, millions of people. Well, why not just get up and make your case? Well, I think it's because she thought it was a really good idea. The San Diego County Board of Supervisors. She got up and put a fucking Santa hat on that she had to hold on to her stupid grape the entire time. Is it because she was so dedicated to the song that it was going to blow off with the notes that she was hitting? Fucking Bridget, everybody. I'll be here all week, everybody. (laughs) Oh, God. So you think this was intentional? She wanted to go viral with this? I don't know. I'm asking the question. I don't know. Yes, that is dedication. I mean, you probably don't go into a San Diego Board of Supervisors meeting thinking you're going to go worldwide or at least nationally viral. But what a dum-dum singing about ivermectin and fucking hydroxychloroquine. Yeah. Well, and again, the I want my freedom now. Come on. Yeah. You're in a board of you're in a county board of supervisors meeting talking about or singing along to a Mariah Carey song with no mask on. Seems like you're pretty wild and free, lady. (laughs) I think everything uh, is okay. Also, um, like next time I go to my doctor. I'm going to, after they give me their 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 science-based, professional, educated medical opinion, mm. I'm going to say, well, you know what? I'm going to, I need a second opinion from the Santa hat Mariah Cara lady <laughs> uh, before, I, before I go with what your recommendations are. Yeah. Ugh. Anyway. Oh, boy. This is where we are, everybody. Mm-hmm. Merry Christmas. <laughs> anyway, we'd love to know what you think. We'd love to amplify your voice. 657-464-7609. Of course, you can always email a voice memo from your smartphone to idoubtit at dollamore.com. That number and that email address should just be in your phone as a contact. 
We want to be part of your 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 slate of friends that you you would send voicemails to. Yes, absolutely. Is that, is that a thing? We do. Yes. <laughs> anyway, we love you guys. We will see you next time. Until then, for Brittany Page, I'm Jesse Dollamore, and this has been I Doubt. It.